0: Hey guys and gals, Cable here, this week's podcast brought to you once again by my friends over at iSocial Boost. You know, I uh, I already had my Lone Star Outdoor Show page pretty squared away, but iSocial Boost guys came to me and said, hey, we've got this product that really can help out people looking to make a name for themselves or grow their brand in the outdoor industry. So I said, you know what, we'll start a new page. And before we promote it, I will determine if Social Boost really works. Well, let me tell you, <laughs> it passed with flying colors. My new page, A Hunter's Legacy, has over 10,200 followers. I, I literally post a couple times a week. Don't do re- really anything to manage it other than just put interesting content out there, and Social Boost does the rest. It It targets people who have the same interest by using hashtags and other people that you want to follow. So like, Jim Shockey, or you use the hashtag deer hunting or big game uh, hunting, all those things. So you find people who have these like interests, and I Boost does the rest. Plus, you can use my promo code, and this is the most important thing: uh, Lone Star. Use that promo code. That's Lone Star at Isocialboost.com, and you'll get 80% off your first week with no strings attached. So use it for a week. If you don't see the kind of growth that you want or expect, then cancel, no strings attached. That is literally a $5 investment on yourself. Check it out, isocialboost.com. I was born to
1: run, so run I made.
0: Good morning, good morning. That is Shane Smith and the Saints Runaway Train kicking things off for us on the Lone Star Outdoors show powered by Dallas Safari Club. I'm your host, Cable Smith. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being here today. It is a treat to be talking, hunting, fishing, the great outdoors and all that implies with you fine folks, Uh, truly nothing I'd rather be doing. Uh, So thanks for being here. We've got a great show lined up for you today on episode, what are we at, 465. Wow, I can't believe it's uh, it's been that long. But yep, 465 is going to be a good one off the top. And <laughs> we've got another outside-of-the-box recipe that uh, might make you a little squeamish. Probably not as much as the boar testicles that uh, we discussed a couple weeks back, but kind outside of outside-of-the-box. Something that I wish I would have known about A lot sooner, to be honest with you, because I do enjoy lingua of, you know, every lingua that's tongue, by the way. uh, Preparation that I've ever had has been very enjoyable. But I've never thought about eating duck tongues until this past weekend. We had a hell of a good time at our annual hunt with Pavor Outdoors and South Pond Outdoors as the Missouri boys came down from, oh, hell, I don't know where they live in Missouri. Somewhere in Missouri. (laughs) But Sean Callahan, our good friend, His Uncle Jeff and a couple other buddies uh, came down to Seymour, Texas, and we all met up there. And we'd like to uh, push the limits on what you can and can't eat. So, this weekend and last weekend, it was duck tongue. And I'm telling you, man, we're going to get into the preparation and uh, my thoughts on the taste, as well as uh, our friend Greg Pavor. He actually cooked it for us. Uh, It was his first time preparing it. And so something new for all of us, but duck tongues, yeah, we're gonna get into that on today's broadcast because I think uh, might be the best part of the duck. I'm not gonna lie. Uh, then we'll be joined by the hunter chef, Michael Hunter, owner of Antler Bar and Kitchen in Toronto. Uh, his restaurant was in the news quite a bit in 2018 as vegan animal rights activist groups made routine protests in front of his restaurant and uh, he famously decided to butcher a deer they serve a lot of wild game uh, at antler bar and kitchen anyway he butchered this deer while they were protesting and it's pretty hilarious uh, to be honest with you police were called and i'm sure michael will get into that a little bit but more importantly I've been keeping track of what's going on with Canada's gun laws, and there is a lot of pressure from anti-gun folks, politicians in Canada right now, to make their already strict gun laws even stricter. So we're going to get into that with Michael, because I truly believe that the left-wingers, the anti-gun folks in the United States, are watching what's going on in Canada and you might think, oh, whatever happens in Canada doesn't affect me, blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. But that's kind of like the hunter who says, hey, what happens in California or British Columbia? or Name the place. It doesn't matter. But they say that it doesn't affect them. Well, it absolutely does. The anti-hunters and the anti-gun establishment, they they celebrate these little victories. And when they manage to score one... Then it's on to the next thing, and that could be you or I, as far as where you live, where I live doesn't matter. We're all in the crosshairs. That is for sure. So, uh, Michael Hunter will be here. We'll talk uh, some wild game dishes and gun rights with Michael, and uh, and then we will wrap up the broadcast with part two of our mini series with Dr. Dale Rollins. And this is going to be on the heels of our quail discussion from a couple weeks ago, uh, but today. We're going to get into the gun dogs that we love to hunt these birds with. And he's got a, a unique line of uh, of dogs that he's been crossbreeding for some time now. So we'll discuss that as well as the traits to look for in the ideal gun dog. So cool stuff coming up with Dr. Dale Rollins, who's been hunting quail now and training these dogs for some 50 odd years. So he might tell you he's not an authority on quail dogs, uh, but. Hey, if you've got five decades of handling, raising, and breeding quail dogs specifically, then that makes you an expert in my book. So we'll be discussing our four-legged hunting partners coming up here at the bottom of the hour. That's what's on the docket for today. I'm certainly excited about it. Going to be a good one, no doubt about that. A couple other things to mention. Check out the new Lone Star Outdoor show t-shirt. It is uh, the Keep It Public shirt i had designed and it's got the two guys in the mountains toasting with a campfire and an elk rack there Um, and it's it's a very crude drawing i'm not gonna lie that's by design Uh, but it says keep it public it's hashtag keep it public and all of the proceeds from this shirt will go towards the texas chapter of backcountry hunters and anglers Uh, so cool stuff there you can find it the the link is on my website. It's also on our Instagram page and posted on Facebook. Uh, It's all through Viral Style. It's a third party uh, company that makes the t-shirts. But all proceeds benefiting the Texas Backcountry Hunters and Anglers chapter. Uh, So keep it public. Check out the shirt. And actually, that's gonna be today's giveaway as well. Here's what you do. To uh, enter to win the new, and it does have our logo on the back, the new Lone Star Outdoors show, keep it public shirt. All you have to do, email the words keep it public to lonestar outdoors show at gmail.com all right easy enough Uh, let's take a quick break when we come back (laughs) it's all about duck times and it's happening next on the lone star outdoors show
1: Cross
2: the river just to hold you tonight Howdy folks, I'm Lee Hoff Hoffbear for Hof Outdoor Superstore in Gothwaite, Texas. I hope you're enjoying the Lone Star Outdoor Show. We've been a title sponsor for a number of years now, and we're proud to be a part of it. I'd also like to thank you for making Hoff Fairs once again the number one Polaris dealer in Texas.
0: Visit bobcat of Dallas.com or call 469-586-0000. Hi, I'm Craig Boddington. I'd like to invite you to become a member of Dallas Safari Club, one of the world's leading hunting and conservation organizations. As a member, you'll receive Game Trails Magazine, a monthly newsletter, and invitations to our monthly meetings and special activities. Join Dallas Safari Club, an international organization based in Dallas, supporting hunting and conservation
1: worldwide. For more information, call 800-9000. Go hunt or visit our website at www.biggame.org. This is Henry Guy. You're listening to my dad on the Lone Star Outdoor Show.
3: little son of a farmer and a small-town southern man.
0: Like his daddy's daddy before him, brought up working on the land. Fell in love with a small-town woman. A little Alan Jackson's always a good thing. Small town Southern man bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show powered by Dallas Safari Club. I'm Cable Smith. Thank you for being here. Uh, Thanks to Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Players as well. Uh, We're all set to get into, I don't want to say a recipe. It's much more than that. A culinary experience that left my taste buds wanting more. I'll tell you that much. Uh, But before our old pal Greg Pavor jumps on. This segment of the presentation is brought to you by Lone Star Beer, the national beer of Texas. Grab a 12-pack on your way to the deer lease. Well, deer season's over for a lot of us. Maybe you're getting after the hogs. Maybe you're breaking out the bass boat for the first time in 2019. Whatever the case may be, put the Lone Stars on ice and remember to celebrate punch and tags and tight lines with an ice cold Lone Star Beer. Um, okay, our first guest today is uh, someone many of y'all are familiar with, as he probably has been on the show just about as much as anyone else, save for maybe Captain Lynn, uh, who checks in for our coastal fishing reports. But Greg Pavor is an old buddy of mine and uh, actually went to his place, his lodge there in Seymour, Texas, this past weekend to hunt hogs and ducks with a mutual friend, uh, Sean Callahan from Missouri. He brings his crew down and... We have a couple awesome days of hunting and eating. And by eating, I mean just wild game meat. Uh, You can forget the sides for this weekend. (laughs) That was of little importance. So just as much meat as you can fit in your mouth as often as you want it. And everybody brought something different to the table, uh, which I'm sure we'll get into here momentarily. But uh, anyway, it's my pleasure to welcome Greg back to the show.
4: Yeah, it was good talking with you, Cable. Yeah, I feel like uh well, it, I don't feel like it was just a couple of weeks ago we were talking about boar testicles, so
1: <laughs> Yeah.
4: Yeah, that uh I got a lot of feedback on that discussion and uh, a lot of a lot of people were like, "Yeah, I would try it," but I'd say like 10% of the the people that commented or sent me emails were like, "You guys are sick in the head."
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's really no difference between Rocky Mountain oysters and and the um, uh, boar testicles just different animal. Yep.
4: Yep. Mhm. Yep. First annual trip we did uh we ate a bobcat that I shot. And then yeah. uh last year we <laughs> last year we ate uh mountain lion and also the boar testicles. That was the first time trying those. So it's like well, we gotta try something different on this trip. So I was honestly thinking that you had cleaned us out, found some Piglets in there, and that—that's what we were going to be eating.
1: Um, oh man, I want to do that to you. <laughs> you wouldn't
4: do that. I, I'm, that's like a delicacy in Argentina. I think that, we'll have to do that next year. But this time around, uh, it was duck tongues. Greg, this is something that is in like Asian culture, very popular. Um, they eat a lot more duck than we typically do in the United States. You know, they save the tongues, and I think I've eaten. Obviously bison tongue and eland tongue, oh beef tongue. You know if you get lingua tacos, at, you know yeah, find a yeah. Mexican gas station yeah. where they make it up fresh right there. Uh, those yeah, are some of the best tacos you can have. But I hadn't tried as you know something as small as a duck, obviously. And so you kind of surprised me. You're like, yeah, this uh, we're gonna. Among all the other awesome wild game that we had over the weekend, this one really stole the show for me. So what got you thinking about or I don't know, what what made you decide that this is the uh, direction we needed to go here?
1: Well, to be honest with you, Cable, well, I knew, you know, y'all wanted to always try something new, mm-hmm. and what gave me the idea was watching uh, the show Top Chef. Huh. They had uh, Duck Tongue on Top Chef, that show, that series, uh-huh. and I just, you know, just crossed my mind, and then I saw it again somewhere on TV or the internet, and I was like, man, I've seen this a couple times now, uh, Duck Tongues. I've never had it. And then, you know, you all always pop into my head. So I well, if it's on top chef and other people are doing it, why can't we try it out and see what it tastes like? You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I Googled it and YouTube it and stuff. And uh, yeah, figured out, okay, this is a real thing yeah. to
4: eat. <laughs> well, Greg, a lot of mm-hmm. people don't like duck. Um, like, I, I enjoy it. You have. I mean obviously you're you're a waterfowl guide, so you've become <laughs> adept at uh making it taste exceptional uh but there's people my wife, for example, she loves wild game when I tell her we're having duck, she does not get excited,
1: <laughs> <laughs> and I think that a lot
4: of the population their taste buds just i don't know it's duck is rich, it's almost livery um but it has a very distinct flavor profile, so I mean. I, a lot of people like it. We both like it, but I understand that as far as wild game, it's I think I think it's probably a, pretty low on the pecking order for people as far as wild game is concerned, generally speaking. But the tongues tastes nothing like the rest of the duck.
1: And, you know, I, I completely agree. For one, you got to know the duck that you're eating. You know, there is your divers and uh, your puddle ducks and stuff, and then how that you got to know how to cook it. You know, if you overcook it, yeah, it's going to taste like your liver. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of people tell me, but it's just like one of those things you got to know how to cook it. But I would will say the breast, the leg, and thigh, and, and tongue, each one of those pieces, they all taste different. And uh, the tongue was very good um, and could not compare it to the rest of the bird.
4: No, no. Because the rest of the bird is, is dark meat, let's just call it. I mean, it is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yep. And you've cooked, uh, I mean, when I first started duck hunting, I mean, we pretty much— got into it at the same time you were a senior in high school which we've told the story before and i was in college and yeah. in academy and I, we were both relatively new to waterfowling. and um you know at that point in time i think we just thought you could take any old ring neck skin it and throw it on the grill and then serve it to your buddies and, and tell them this is good food
1: <laughs> yep then yep, they're done that and they call it
4: bs on that you know like oh okay well this is not what i would call good food and plus why there's I think I just bit into a pellet. (laughs) Uh, You woke
1: up at four o'clock in the morning to do this? Yeah. 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 But
4: uh, obviously, Uh you know, as you evolve as a hunter, you, if if you're passionate about it, you're going to be passionate about taking that into the kitchen and you're going to become a better cook. Um, You're the first person, though, that ever cooked duck legs for me. And uh, I think, I don't remember if you cooked Sandhill crane legs first or duck legs, but You've always saved that and inspired me to save those pieces as well. A lot of people just... They
1: are awesome.
4: Oh, yeah. Yeah, and they taste different yeah, from definitely. the breast, for sure. Um,
1: I'd they say... Definitely do.
4: A lot of people just, you know, skin skin it out or pluck, um, pull the breast apart, especially on puddle ducks. It's very easy. Just put your fingers on that breastbone and just pull. It comes apart. Diver's a little trickier. You usually have to get a knife out, but I'd say the majority of people that hunt ducks probably just breast them out, you know? Um yep. and I think that we're in a time right now where there's a movement for organic food and people are more open minded to eating organ meat than let's just say any time in the last thirty, forty years. You know, people got away from that. Um I'd say our parents' generation really didn't eat much organ meat. Maybe a generation or two before that it was nobody wasted anything, you know.
1: Yep, that is correct
4: so we're we're kind of coming back to that. So here we are pushing the envelope um and I'll say this it takes a lot of duck tongues to make a meal.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that is right. It Does take a lot of duck tongues, but you know the good the good thing about the duck tongues is they're very easy to take out of the duck and they're very easy and quick to cook. No marinating is necessary and uh, it's very quick cooking, so uh, it's not time-consuming at all.
4: Yeah. So how do you actually remove the tongue from the from the bird?
1: Well, pretty much right there. I just pull the tongue um, out a little bit and get my knife and cut it at the very end of the tongue. Uh, there's some bones there uh-huh. um, right where it meets the throat. Um, and cut that off and then just rinse them off. And I got a skillet with some butter and... Uh, onions, some garlic powder, and or garlic salt, actually, I did, not garlic powder, mm-hmm. and put the duck tongues in there. And I actually did use a little bit of olive oil and slow cook them. When I say slow, you know, we probably cook them for 20 minutes, um, just on medium heat. Just Saute salt- them,
4: them essentially, yeah.
1: Saute them, yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. Covered them up. And uh, that, that's how we had it. Um, they were, yeah, I thought they turned out really
4: good. Yeah, I was a little skeptical. I thought the consistency might be a little bit chewy. Um, but it wasn't at all. I mean, and that it probably just goes to the cooking method. But um, I think if you fry them, obviously the, you know, the Asian community, Asian culture, I think they fry a lot of these things and then dip them. I've seen them, you know, dip them in like sriracha or some kind of soy sauce or something. Yeah. Serve them as an mm-hmm. appetizer. And I was like, well, Greg, how do you want to cook these things? Are you just going to fry them and do something similar to that? And, of course, you're like, no, I want to get the full flavor profile, you know, just like we did on the bobcat that first time. Throw some bobcat on the grill and Uh let's just see what this animal really tastes like. And it was uh, not good. That's right. But you you didn't want to fry these. We'll be honest
1: about it, too. You know, I just want the only thing about you and me, like, you know, Yeah, we're going to be honest about it. We're not going to try something
4: and say, yeah, that was really good, and it was not. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was the backstrap. We put no seasoning on it, just threw it on the grill and like,
2: let's
4: (laughs) let's really find out what this bobcat's up to. And and it wasn't a pleasant experience. Took the other backstrap, threw it in a slow cooker, (laughs) and we all went hog hunting, uh, thermal hog hunting. Came back five or six hours later and uh, made, like, sliders out of it. And that was at least palatable, you know. I mean, I wouldn't call that... Great, but I think it all got eaten, so it wasn't awful. Um, Yep, I agree. I certainly prefer mountain lion over bobcat, that is uh, for sure. Oh, yeah. The mountain
1: lion you brought was actually really good. Um, I did enjoy that a lot, and everyone else did, too. Yeah, Mm
4: -hmm. pretty tasty. Uh, Some other stuff that we had over the weekend, and, and this is everybody brings something to the table. The guys from Missouri, Sean and them, they brought snow goose jerky. They brought some turkey thigh tamales, all kinds of sausage and stuff that they actually left with us. And then I brought uh, elk, like five different types of elk meatballs, uh, chipotle cheese, all from Cinnamon Creek Processing. A uh, Hatch green chili, oh, bratwurst, Creek did awesome. Yeah. What was your favorite?
1: Yeah. Oh man, the the meatballs were exceptional. I will say Cinnamon Creek it does really good on their meats. And I, I always tell people, go to them, and I've never had the meatballs before. I've always seen your pictures and other people's pictures, but those elk Italian meatballs you had were awful. I mean, that was the best, by far, meatballs I've ever had. Yeah. Very juicy, not dried out, great Italian herbs. Um, the Chipotle's the hatch green chili was just exceptional. Mm-hmm.
4: Right on, right on. Yeah, and yeah, we made sliders, uh This weekend, and that's a, you know, you don't have to just throw them in spaghetti with uh, marinara sauce. Oh, no. Lots of different things you can do with those meatballs. Uh, Back to the duck tongues, though, as we're kind of wrapping things up, they do have a little bone in them, so you you find that, you pinch it down, and then you basically just put it between your teeth, and the meat just slides off in your mouth. Uh, And here's the interesting thing, Greg. What was the best tasting out of uh, all the tongues? (laughs)
1: Well, I will say that the shovelers were the best. <laughs> yeah. You know, it did taste like chicken a little bit, but, you know, I got a little oyster flavor there, uh-huh. um, uh, which I like a lot, but they're very – yeah, the the teal were good. I guess we had teal, ringnecks, mallards, gadwalls, the shovelers, and um, I'm missing one there. Maybe a
4: wood duck or um, two. I don't know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and by far, the uh, yep, the shoveler was the best. It was the it was uh, the juiciest, the thickest. Um, uh, it it was awesome. Uh, it surprised me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You well, can definitely tell a difference.
4: Obviously, the biggest too. I mean, they've got that godforsaken bill for a reason, and uh, <laughs> yeah. they get a bad rap, you know, as far as people shun those ducks. Well, I'm not going to shoot spoonies, but. We're not too proud, man. We shot a bunch of them on on uh, Saturday morning, and I mean, dude, spoony tongues, two thumbs up, all the way.
1: <laughs> Heck yeah. yeah! Heck yeah! It's been a lot of them, but yeah, take uh, work as a great appetizer, and uh, they were they were very good. It's definitely something I can say I will be cooking uh, more yeah. in the future.
4: It's a shame that we've been at this game for quite quite some time as far as chasing ducks is concerned, and literally thousands of duck tongues have been wasted. <laughs> yeah, well,
1: you know, like I say, it's always good to have friends like you and Sean and other people that like to be adventurous and try new things, and if it's bad, we're going to say it's bad. If it's good, we're going to say it's good. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, a lot of a lot of these countries eating a lot of different things than we do, and, you know, it's a lot of it's highly nutritious and good, and it's always going to be, you know, not wasteful. You yeah. got to be thankful for what we have.
4: And open-minded too. I mean, we we get like the duck tongues that's inspired by Asian culture. Um and I think that as part of being a good cook or chef uh is taking the best of every culture and infiltrating it into your own cooking. So uh we certainly did that just right. past weekend and uh I'm looking forward to seeing what we get into next time. So It's uh, always a good time when the Missouri boys come down and we all get together at your place. It was a hell of a weekend. I think we got 37 ducks that morning, and I can't remember how many hogs they shot, but it was quite a few.
1: Oh, man. Yep, they uh, they got a lot of pigs and a lot of ducks, and it was a really, really good time, and we're going to be doing it the exact same week next year as we did this year.
4: Fourth so, annual, yeah. Um,
1: <laughs> yep, that'll be good. Yep. You betcha. We've got to figure something out for next year.
4: All right. <laughs> and if you want to see a video, uh, I'm actually going to put a little YouTube together of the preparation all the way through the cooking process and then us eating these duck tongues. Uh, that You can find that on my YouTube and then clips and pictures on on uh, Greg and I's uh, social media outlets as well. So.
1: Yeah, that's a good idea because when I YouTubed it, there was not a lot of videos on duck tongue on seeing people how to cook it. Oh, right on. So, so that would be awesome if you did that. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
4: Well, they can check it out. I'll have it up next week. So it'll be on our Lone cool. Outdoor Show YouTube. All right, brother. Well, Greg, appreciate it, man. I look forward to uh, uh, next time we get to hang out and –
1: I really enjoyed um, having you and Sean and the rest of the guys. It was a good time as always. Just um, uh, the only thing that would have made it better is if our um, uh, Cowboys would have won.
4: Yeah. Uh, That's
1: the only bad part of the whole weekend. (laughs) Yes,
4: sir. No doubt about it. All right, Greg. Hey, we'll talk to you soon, bud. All right. Thanks a lot. Have a good one. All right. There he goes, our good
0: friend Greg Pavor. You can find him on uh, Instagram and Facebook under Pavor Outdoors. That's P-A-V-U-R. Also, his website, poutdoors.com. And if you want to book a hog hunt, you need to get on that because Greg stays booked out literally uh, about 12 months in advance. Uh, That segment of the presentation brought to you by Pulsar Night Vision and Thermal Imaging Technology. And I'll just put this out here. I let Sean, uh, one of the Missouri guys, borrow my Pulsar Helion on, I think it was Saturday night. Uh, He took it hog hunting. And I get a text from him. He's sitting in the blind. He said, Dude, this Pulsar is so much better than my (laughs) Fleer. And I texted him back. I was like, "Well, yeah, obviously. Check it out. It's the Pulsar Helion. You can find it at pulsarnv.com." Well, up next, it's the Hunter Chef Michael Hunter of Antler Bar and Kitchen. You're listening to the Lone Star Outdoors Show. county illinois and the surrounding area is hallowed ground for whitetail hunters and with 21 years experience golden triangle whitetails is the oldest outfitter in the state spread out over 14,000 acres they have 350 acres of food plots 500 tree stands and over 80 box blinds the guides take pride in having hunters harvest giant midwest bucks golden triangle whitetail hunts the illinois archery shotgun and muzzleloader season they have a full-time chef and excellent lodging Book your Whitetail Hunt of a Lifetime by going to www.goldentrianglewhitetail.com today.
1: You thought God was an architect, now you know, He's something like a pipe bomb ready to blow. And everything you built so for show
0: goes up in flames in 24 frames. Jason Isbell, 24 frames. Some good stuff right there. God, certainly still an architect and a pipe bomb all at the same time. No doubt about that. I'm Cable Smith. Thank you for being here. This is the Lone Star Outdoors show powered by Dallas Safari Club. Hope everyone is coming out to Mogambo 2019. This weekend It's going down at the K. Bailey Hutchinson Convention Center downtown dallas truly a global celebration for the hunting and outdoor lifestyle there'll be outfitters there'll be gun makers knife makers boot makers uh you name it fishing guides furriers if it has to do with hunting fishing or the great outdoors you'll find it at the dallas safari club convention so hopefully i'll see you out there as i will be there from open to close every day It's a great event put on by volunteers. I'm one of them. And uh, if you're looking to get plugged in with a great group of passionate conservationists, then check out Dallas Safari Club. You can find us at biggame.org. All right. Our next guest hails from north of the border. You all know I've spent some time in Canada over the years uh, bear hunting, and then I did that trap line last year, which uh, leads me to Toronto, (laughs) which is where Michael Hunter is from. And Toronto, I've spent a couple hours in Toronto on accident. Had to fly from Smithers, British Columbia to Vancouver. And then my flight from Vancouver to Dallas was canceled. So then I had to fly from Vancouver to Toronto. And that's like flying from New York to California to get to Dallas, by the way. If you look at it geographically, it's absolutely insane. But that's where Michael Hunter is from. The Hunter chef, owner of Antler Bar and Kitchen. He joins us now. Michael? Thanks for being here, man.
4: Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. It looks like you've had a a great hunting season just based off your photos I've been seeing on Instagram. Uh, Certainly did some traveling. So what was the most exciting place you hunted and and what harvest were you the most proud of this fall?
3: Uh, Definitely my hunt with uh, the guys from Mossy Oak in West Point, Mississippi uh, was the most memorable. I uh, I shot a nice little eight-point buck across the field at 165 yards. And it was definitely the cleanest kill I've ever had myself. Um, I hit him high in the shoulder, and uh, he just dropped instantly and, uh, and sort of died on impact. So um, that was uh, that was pretty exciting for me. Um, it was definitely the most ethical uh, kill I've ever had. So.
4: Oh yeah, yeah. And you know, I typically am a pretty good shot. Uh, last week, though, I I told the story of I took all three of my kids and the wife to the deer lease uh, last. Uh, was two weekends ago. We we're going oh, to shoot. Wow, that's pretty cool, yeah, and my girls are four the twins, and then Henry is uh, six, and the girls are just wearing me out because I took Henry um hunting earlier this season and we got a shot a buck together um, wow. and they hadn't been they've been dove hunting, they'd never yeah. done anything else, and they're like, we want to go deer hunting, we want you know, I was proud that four year olds wanted to do that,, yeah. but also wanted it to be a good experience anyway uh i shot a doe at like 100 yards and gut shot her and just like the <laughs> you, oh, you know no. it could shoot a something in africa at five six hundred yards no problem and then you get the wife and kids in there and feeling the pressure of making it this great experience and uh <laughs> it turned out okay but i don't think the kids understood that i I made a, a poor shot on the animal you know uh, yeah so but my wife did say uh Maybe I might have to put this on a t-shirt or something, but she said, do you always have to shoot them four times?
3: <laughs>
4: <Yeah>.
3: <laughs>
4: was like, don't you do this yeah, yeah. for a living? And I was like, I don't just, don't even want to talk about it. Let's just move on. So, uh, but congrats awesome. on your buck, man. That's awesome.
3: Thank you. Yeah. I was really excited.
4: Yeah. So being from Toronto, is that where you're originally from?
3: Yeah. So I, I actually grew up, uh, outside the city, about an hour, uh, north of Toronto on a horse farm. Hmm.
4: Okay do you guys have whitetail or what is the uh so
3: we uh our our big game is uh moose bear whitetail um and uh they've reintroduced elk uh pretty recently but it is uh i've actually never uh come across any i've I've never applied for the tags yet Mm -hmm. um, because i think they've they've introduced that season within the last five years
4: okay right on so you said a horse farm, so like for riding or was this like for selling horse meat?
3: Uh, no, this was uh, for riding. So my, uh, my parents were uh, kind of hunter-jumper uh, show uh, circuit uh, stuff. But I also um, did a little bit of uh, English fox hunting um, uh, north of the city cool. with, uh, with a pack of hounds. And uh, here there's not a lot of, uh, of fox. Um, but we are uh definitely highly concentrated with coyotes, and um uh, a lot of the farms have issues with uh, coyotes and their livestock mm.
4: so you're on horseback with a pack of hounds chasing yep. uh that's like a scene out of the you know 1700s or 1800s <laughs> it's awesome, you, you know. know what
3: it it's uh, it was pretty cool, and it was it was my introduction to hunting as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, the uh, the huntsman that trained the hounds um, actually took me out on my first uh, turkey hunt um, when I was when I was eighteen. So I got into it kind of late, mm-hmm. uh, hunting for food because um, my, my dad wasn't uh, like a hunter for uh, for game.
4: Okay, well, so tell our uh, tell our listeners what you do for a living exactly.
3: Um, so I'm a chef by trade, and I own uh, Antler Kitchen and Bar with uh, a family friend of mine uh, in Toronto. Right, right, and and so our
4: our paths have crossed before, and and I think I've found out about you through some. I, I want to say, I believe most PR is good PR, and and I don't know this might have helped. <laughs> it it might have. I'm sure it helped pack the restaurant, but it was also a, a real pain in the rear end. Uh, you guys had quite a few. Protesters and, and and it seems like they they came and protested in front of your your establishment there for um, a significant amount of time.
3: Yeah, we had uh, a vegan activist group um, take offense to our chalkboard sign. We're we're a small family-run restaurant. Uh, we have 45 seats, and um, um, all of our. Uh, our, our meat is sourced from uh, local Canadian farmers. Mm-hmm. Um, we're mostly in Ontario, but we do use Alberta bison. Um, and our concept is, uh, is you know, based off wild game and foraging uh, and just all, everything outdoors um, because of my passions. Mm-hmm. Um, and our, our laws are similar as, as where you are, is we can't sell um, hunted game for profit, um, but uh, we use all local game farms. Um, and the animals go to, you know, go to slaughter, but they're raised on, you know, really nice. Um, a lot of them are organic, uh, family run farms. And, um, you know, we like to promote that because we think it's a, you know, ethical choice for our customers. And we put on our, uh, sign, venison is the new kale.
1: <laughs>
3: and, uh, this vegan cyclist, uh, biked by and took offense and started organizing protests. Uh, outside my restaurant.
4: Wow yeah and, and so was that you that was actually butchering the I don't know what it was uh, it might have been a deer while they were sitting there protesting?
3: Yeah so uh, after three or four months of uh, being targeted I finally couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> and we, uh, we buy uh, whole animals from our deer farmer uh-huh. and uh, just coincidentally, that morning, we got uh, a whole deer in. So I went downstairs and uh, took a hindquarter, um, whole leg, back leg, and came and jointed it in the window as my own uh, protester told me to get lost. Um, and uh, they they recorded it and put it online, and uh, that's the, the story that went viral.
4: Yeah, yeah, and I'm sure... It, <laughs> It probably didn't hurt business, you know, for people that want to support that type of establishment, uh, that type of restaurant. Um, but, yeah, you know, they called the police. And what are the police going to do? You're in your own restaurant butchering an animal.
3: Yeah, so the police were actually great. We, um, we would actually call the police um, and have them on site mainly for the safety of our customers mm-hmm. um, because they were um, – harassing our customers that were coming in the door. So, uh, the police actually came in because they were, uh, protesters were telling the police that we were breaking the sanitation laws, um, and that they were going to call the department of health. So the police came in to actually warn me what they were doing. And I instructed them that I wasn't breaking any health codes.
1: Mm -hmm.
3: Um, and then in the video, you can actually kind of see them laughing. And, um, yeah, we had a bit of a chuckle, and, um, you know, they just said they wanted to warn me in case I was doing something I wasn't supposed to, that they were recording it. Yeah, yeah. So they were actually pretty great. Uh, they were pretty great through the whole uh, 11 months. They were, uh, they were there just to kind of make sure everybody was safe and no one was being hurt.
4: So once a week for 11 months, and then they finally kicked on down the road, they're, they're not harassing you anymore?
3: Yeah, they've left us alone for now. They've got uh, some Facebook pages and groups, so we kind of monitor what they're what they're up to. And they've, uh, I guess, they've decided that they're not they're not really making a difference in front of our place. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, they've moved on to. uh, I know they 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 target these slaughterhouses and other businesses in the area.
4: Well, Toronto seems like a pretty liberal city, Um, you know. And I was curious how antler bar has been received, um, obviously besides the protest protesters.
3: Um, right from, so I've been a chef for, uh, 21 years now and I've, I've been in the city of Toronto cooking, um, for the last 10. Um, so when we opened, we had, um, we had a ton of great reviews. We made some best of lists, um, we won some competitions uh, and actually had some trips uh, all over the world to cook in some culinary festivals and competitions. Um, so we were always uh, doing really well, and we were really surprised actually the response to uh, a whole game uh, menu because um, there's really not uh, a lot of restaurants like us uh, in, in Toronto and. In well, anywhere.
4: I mean, we don't. I mean, we don't have those kind of places in Texas. Yeah, you know, but very. Um, uh, commonly anyway
3: yeah and then there's a couple places you know they'll serve a deer dish or a rabbit dish here and there but nothing where you really have the same variety that we do um so we had chicken on the menu we had a couple things on the menu that were you know sort of just in case people mm-hmm. were freaked out or didn't want to try it um and we ended up eating the chicken for staff meal most of the time just so it didn't go bad because <laughs> no one no one was ordering it <laughs> so uh, it was really nice and for me as a chef that's really it's, it's really cool that you know people uh were coming to try new stuff Um, and it was was well received
4: Mm -hmm. and as you mentioned you know all these animals even though they are wild game species they are from farms just like in the United States whether it's elk or bison, pheasant, quail I mean you name it um, it's illegal to kill something in the field and then sell it uh, commercially Um,
3: Um, there's actually one place in Canada where it's legal which is pretty cool it's in uh, Newfoundland and they passed a law um, that uh, the hunter needs to get a special permit to sell, and then uh, a butcher shop has to get a permit to inspect it, and then they they can actually sell it to restaurants. Um, And uh, they had an issue, uh, they have more moose population than people, and uh, it was a way of culling the moose population, um, and also boosting tourism, um, so it's a pretty remote uh, part of the country Uh uh, on the East Coast, um, and that's how they actually got the laws to go through, um, because it was sponsored by Newfoundland
2: Tourism mm
4: Interesting. So, what is yeah. the uh, what is the most popular recipe on the menu?
3: Um, definitely our deer dish is the most popular. We do. Um, it's kind of cool because we feature the primal cuts. So as we go through the whole animal, we'll feature the rack and then the strip loin and the tenderloins uh, as the center cut on the plate. And then we also serve it with uh, like a stew of the neck meat and the shanks. Uh-huh. So it's kind of done. It's done two ways. and It's with uh, parsnip puree and some charred uh, vegetables. Um, and there's a pretty cool spice rub on the, uh, on the steak that we do.
4: And what, and what is your favorite wild game to work with?
3: My favorite wild game to cook is definitely deer. And I think for me, it's just uh, flavor uh, of whitetail. It's just my favorite. I get the most satisfaction of shooting deer for um, I guess a bunch of reasons. Where I hunt uh, in Caledon, it's, it's pretty uh, close to the city and it's a small rural kind of town. Um, there's only an archery season and here we're allowed to use a compound or, or crossbow for the archery season. Uh-huh. Um, so for me, it's just, it's so much harder to get that close um, to a deer. And I, yeah, I think the flavor is just, is just my favorite, but um, I, I, you know, I enjoy waterfowl and turkey hunting and, uh, and everything else. It's just deer is my favorite.
4: Awesome. Well, hey, let's do this. Let's uh, let's take a quick commercial break. We'll come back and we'll get into something else I wanted to discuss today. And, and I've been following along kind of the gun control climate in Canada uh, yep. for a variety of reasons, but I want to discuss that next. Are you cool to stick around?
3: Yeah,
2: absolutely.
0: Perfect. And that segment was brought to you by Rudy's True, Texas Style Barbecue and Sendero Seed Company, Texas premier seed company offering anything and everything you need to keep a happy and healthy whitetail herd including the Dr. Deer-backed Buck Forge Oats Sedaro Seed Company for all your planting needs we'll be right back with more from the Hunter chef Michael Hunter you're listening to the Lone Star Outdoor show I've
1: been spinning my wheels I've been wasting my time tried everything I know just to get you off my mind
0: tried- alright waterfowl junkies the finisher is the quick and humane way to dispatch a duck or goose it's, uh, you know, it's unsettling when you've wrung that bird's neck. You throw it in the pile, and 10 minutes later, he's laying there flopping. uh uh-uh. We don't want that. That's not ethical. And so the finisher alleviates that. You stick the finisher in the back of the bird's skull at an upward angle. Give it a little twist. Boom. Dead instantly. Never felt the thing. The finisher is only 14 bucks. It fits on any waterfowling lanyard, and you can find it at adrenal-line.com. Hey, hey, all you waterfowl junkies out there. Cable here for TX Duck Blinds. Highly durable and highly mobile customized duck blinds built by duck hunters for duck hunters. Each blind is built from solid steel by professional welders and field tested before shipment. A duck season will come and go, but guess what? Your TX Duck Blind is built to last. Customize yours today by calling 817 965 1306. You can also find them at TexasDuckBlinds.com or check them out on Instagram and Facebook at TXDuckBlinds.
1: I guess I can't outrun
0: the truth behind me and you. So here I
1: am doing what I can to get you off my mind. Holding a stranger to drown out our old flame and try to
0: numb all the pain. And here I am a pair of bombs I don't belong in. Cable Smith welcoming everybody back, back to the Lone Star. Outdoor show so powered right, by Dallas no Safari man, Club. Thanks right to Lone Star Beer right and Hoff Power Polaris as well. That is the music of Trey Gonzalez. Here I am is the name of that one. And Trey is one of those up and comers who have taken advantage of the opportunity uh, for me to play their tunes here on the show. And many of you have probably seen. I post the weekly playlist on my Facebook, Instagram, and uh, website as well, and I put out you know, an open invitation. Hey, if you're an up-and-comer, if you're an aspiring country musician in the vein of Texas or Red Dirt or classic country, none of that Nashville crap, uh, but if that is who you are, you've got some music you want me to hear, send it over, and chances are I'll probably play it on the show. So thank you, Trey. Love that tune. Um, This segment of the show proudly brought to you by First Light. You guys know that uh, I'm a huge fan of everything First Light does, but their Merino wool is where they made their name. And First Light keeps reinventing themselves. If you haven't seen the Arrow wool, this is their latest wool technology. And let me tell you, when it's cold, you're going to want wool. (laughs) And when it's hot, you're going to want wool. Why? Because you're going to sweat. But the Arrow wool works to keep that moisture wicked away from your body, and it dries faster. This is another thing. If you're at 10,000 feet and you're walking 10 miles, you're gonna sweat, your clothes are gonna get wet, but that Aero wool dries faster than any other fabric that I've ever seen. You can find First Light's entire Aero wool base layer lineup right there at firstlight.com, as well as uh, the rest of their awesome outdoor gear as well. First Light, go further, stay longer. Well, let's go ahead and get back into it with Michael Hunter, owner of the Antler Kitchen and Bar in Toronto, passionate outdoorsman and chef. Michael, thanks for sticking around through the break, man.
3: Yeah, thank you. So
4: many Americans might not find Canada's gun climate to be of much importance to them. However, I think that is truly ignorant, and I'm going to continue to closely monitor what's going on in Canada. Um, Because, I mean, make no mistake about it, our... (laughs) Our leftist politicians here, they know what's going on in Canada, and if they see you guys have any further success with stricter gun regulation, I mean, that just gives them more motivation. It's been in the news, though, lately, as far as some unrest in Canada, and uh, and I'll let you talk a little bit about what's going on and uh, how it has the potential to affect you.
3: Well, I think Canada has some has some things that I, I do like about our, our gun control um, and our you know licensing system is that you know everyone has to take uh, a course an exam about gun safety and I think I think that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think any, you know anyone would disagree with that. And uh, there's two classifications. There's actually three, but there's only two really available ones uh, to the general public. And it's called a restricted and non-restricted license. So um, a non-restricted license is basically your long gun. So shotguns, rifles, um, anything with a barrel length of over 18 inches. Right. Um, so even like the, you know, 16-inch ARs are actually classified as uh, restricted weapons here, uh, or firearms rather. And um, so restricted firearms here are handguns. Uh, and anything, you know, with a smaller barrel of 16 inches. So like, uh, you know, some coach gun and sawed off uh, you know, style tactical shotguns would fall under the restricted class. And, uh, the difference between the two classes are that the non-restricted, um, firearms you're allowed to hunt with and the restricted firearms you're not. So you can't, uh, you know, bear, for instance, with your rifle and have a pistol on your, on your belt, um, you know, for safety and things like that. Um, the restricted firearms are really only, we're only able to use them at a certified range. So if you have a farm or ranch, you can't go out in the back and plate cans for your son with a little
4: 22
3: uh, hmm.
4: hang <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah, and I've, <laughs> yeah, I've, uh, kind of crazy. I've hunted bears in Canada and I actually wanted to hunt them with the 10 millimeter and the outfit is yeah. like, ah, no, you can't you can't even bring that in here, much less hunt with it. So, yeah. um, and so that's not, a, that's not specific just to foreigners. That's actually something that Canadian citizens yeah. face. And, um, if you wanted to get a handgun, you'd have to go through some strict permitting process, which, um, uh, my outfitter said sometimes that takes over a year to even get the right to own the handgun.
3: Yeah. So I'm still waiting for my license for that. And I did a course in November and submitted my application. Um, and it's, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's in the processing kind of department now with the, uh, the RCMP, the, the Royal Mounted Police. Um, and it's, there's no real timeline on how long that will take. Hmm. Uh, my non-restricted license took, uh, I think, seven months to come in the mail.
4: Before you could buy a before, shotgun or rifle.
3: Before I could buy a shotgun or rifle.
4: I mean, I could just um, walk down to Walmart and pick one, three of each up if I wanted to.
3: Yeah. So we, I I can do that now, but I can't, uh, when you, the initial license until you get that, you can't, uh, you can't, uh, purchase firearms or ammunition. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, and then I forgot the third class is uh, prohibited. So anything, um, there's a, there's a few different, uh, things that are prohibited. So fully automatic stuff is prohibited, um, as well as like, uh, handguns with a barrel less than three and a half inches, I believe. Hmm. Um, maybe we have to back stuff, but I'm pretty sure it's three and a half inches. Um, so like snub-nose revolvers, they're not allowed in Canada.
4: Hmm. Okay. Well, has it always been this way? Uh, or, or was there a time when you remember, maybe, because I, I don't know that historically the uh, climate of Canada's gun legislation, but was there a time when they made things a lot tougher?
3: For me, I don't... Uh, definitely this is the way i've grown up with it um i didn't i didn't get my firearms license until i was 25 um i was hunting with a i started with a compound bow and then i switched to a crossbow um when i was uh 19 i think i was hunting with a bow so um it just and the main reason for that there's only like i mentioned for the deer season where i have permission to hunt uh there's no gun season so i just Started hunting with a bow just because it was the only thing really available to hunt deer.
4: Huh. Well, so then why do you want a pistol?
3: There's been talks of uh, of banning uh, of handguns in Canada, and 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 talking talking about getting rid of that sort of classification. So I wanted to get that license just to be grandfathered in if I'm um, able
4: Yeah, that's where yeah. I wanted to go with this. Is that that's what I've been seeing in the in the news lately? Is talks of Canada. Uh, it, actually, you mentioned to me off the air that Toronto City Council just passed a proposal for the banning of all handguns and uh, are trying to get that, sent I guess, trying to get Trudeau to pass that nationally. Yeah. Which, that's that's a scary thing. Are you there?
3: Yeah, just, yeah
4: uh, can you hear me? Yeah, I got you now.
3: Um, yeah, so that... It's a it's a federal law, so I don't think that would really pass. That they would just have that law for their city, uh, you know. But who knows? Um, and a lot of that, there's you know there's been a spike in gang related uh, crimes and homicides. Um, and you know the argument here is that you know criminals aren't aren't going through these steps to to get uh, gun licenses. They're buying them off the street. And of course they are. You know that's that's where they should be focusing. Um, you know, tax dollars and policing efforts as policing people that are, you know, doing things illegally, not people that are duck hunters and sports shooters. So, right,
4: right. And I know it seems like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like the Canadian citizens are alarmed by the current state of immigration and also the fact that criminals are being released, getting off way too easy and then being released from jail. And, and like you yeah. said, they're not. They're not going to the store. Oh, they're sure as hell not waiting a year to get a permit to own a handgun.
3: No, um, and the, you know, there's been some arguments that you know people are buying guns legally and then and then selling them to criminals, and um, you know, there's really not a lot of statistics to prove that. But that's been some argument.
4: Doesn't it? Doesn't seem safe for you? And then the,
3: the, the, the yeah. So the police have commented saying that you know that that's not true, and there's been a bunch of you know, things that have been said, you know, by politicians to try and sway the public opinion on, on the subject, but in the, in the fact of the matter, the police are saying that's not the case.
4: Uh-huh. Do you think that criminals are being released too early? or What is the, what is going on there? Because I've heard a lot of discussion on that.
3: Yeah, there was a news report um, that the first homicide in January of 2019 was uh, from an individual that had previous convictions of firearm uh, charges and, and was released, or, you know, his time served or whatever. Uh, I don't know the facts about that specific case, but uh, the person that was arrested had previous firearms charges.
4: So, here's the government that doesn't really seem intent on dealing with criminals harshly enough and at the same time they want to implement stricter gun laws on the law-abiding citizens. Yep. Yeah, that uh, that's, that doesn't seem like a, uh, <laughs> a climate that Someone like yourself or any uh, legal gun owner would be interested in. You guys do have something similar to the NRA in the uh, Canadian Coalition for Firearms Rights. Yes. I don't know how powerful they are. I doubt they're as as powerful or as influential as the NRA. Uh, Do they have a significant voice?
3: Um, they, I think they do. They've got, um, there's a, a Senator Don Platt, I think is his name. I can send you some info on him. Uh, he's a Senator um, in the House of Parliament right now, and uh, he's with the Conservative Party. Um, so he, he's kind of got an argument um, for uh, legal gun owners and is um, sort of lobbying for change because uh, I think the issues are being discussed uh, in February of this year. I think the the bill is called uh, Bill C-71.
4: Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, I mean, hopefully we'll, you guys will get that passed. Going back to just hunting in Canada and then visiting with the uh, the outfitters, hell, my guide, and we actually had him on to talk about some bear stories from he hunts the uh, Yukon and Northwest Territories. Yep. And he can't carry a pistol. And he's had acquaintances, fellow guides get mauled, killed by grizzlies, for, his, for him personally, he wishes that he could carry. And then for someone living yeah. in the city like yourself, obviously, I mean, you want to be able to protect yourself. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I'm, I'm closely watching what's going on. Your President Trudeau is, <laughs> is, you know, much like I think if Hillary would have been elected here, something that uh, is worth monitoring, and, and someone that's uh, scary to people yeah. who believe in and firearm rights. So definitely worth watching. Let's Let's talk a little bit about... Something that you've got, something exciting that's coming up here in the near future, uh, the cookbook, which I don't know if it's going to be titled uh, Antler Bar or if it's just uh, <laughs> Michael Hunter. What is it? What is going on with the cookbook?
3: Um, so we, uh, my manuscript is due the 1st of March this year, and uh, we're going to be publishing with uh, Penguin Random House. And uh, the title is undecided yet. Um, it, you know, It might be something to do with Antler. It might be The Hunter Chef. We're not quite sure yet. Uh, but it is focused on wild game and wild fish, uh, foraging for mushrooms and and basically everything wild.
4: Awesome, awesome. Well, you you'll have to send me a copy of that so we can uh, implement Absolutely. some of those recipes into uh, our regular rotation. What is Absolutely. your uh, what are
3: your what's your social media outlet? Um, I can be found at uh, the Hunter Chef on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and uh, Antler is uh, Antler Kitchen and Bar on. Uh, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook as well.
4: Right on. Well, cool, man. Well, Michael, certainly appreciate it. Uh, Certainly enjoy looking at all of your wild game preparations that you guys serve at the restaurant. And if I ever am up in Toronto, that'll be the first place I check out.
3: Awesome, man. Thank you so much. We'd love to have you.
0: All right. The Hunter Chef, Michael Hunter, and uh, certainly interesting stuff there. Going back to the vegan protesters, uh, we tried to get Michael on at the time, but... His attorneys advised him not to to speak on the topic until it all settled down. So now that the dust has settled, he's free to talk about that. The, the protesters finally lost interest anyway when they realized they weren't making a damn difference anyway. Plus, I find it to be exponentially important for us to monitor what's going on, not just in Canada, but globally, as far as the temperature for gun control is concerned. Uh, I think it's bad news, even if it's in South America, Africa, Asia, you name it, especially Europe, but it's it's bad news when any country uh, just goes ahead and says, screw you to our citizens, we're taking your guns, or limits what they can legally own and what they can't. Because let's be honest, do you want more gun owners or less gun owners? I, I certainly want more. Uh, across the world, I mean, I think everyone should own a gun or at least have the right to if they so choose. Especially when the military is armed to the teeth with the latest and greatest. I guarantee you in the in the countries where the citizens have no gun rights whatsoever, uh, their military is still walking around with ARs. There's no doubt about that. So for me, it's more of a global mindset. You know, the more hunters we have globally, the better. The more gun owners we have globally, the less non-gun owners are going to be able to look at us and ostracize us even further and claim that we have no right to bear arms. So uh, that's why I think it's important. That segment of the show, by the way, brought to you by John X Safaris. The date is June 7th through the 15th. If you want to be a part of the Lone Star Outdoors Show Safari, this is the third annual trip with John X, then just shoot me an email, Lone Star Show at gmail.com. I'll send you all the pertinent information right over. Coming up next, it's part two of our mini-series with Dr. Dale Rollins. We're going to discuss those four-legged hunting partners who love to flush quail for us. You're listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show.
1: Nothing but a wounded highway, no blood in these veins. You hardly see a car, truck, or train.
0: Live Oak Outdoors offers some of the best waterfowl hunting in the Central Flyway. Hunting over 2,000 acres of cut rice along the coast that attracts wintering geese by the tens of thousands. Hunts take place out of layout blinds or white parkas over a spread of 1,500 decoys. It's also common to shoot pintail and other puddle ducks in the goose spread. Professional guides make sure you have a safe and memorable hunt of a lifetime. They're based out of El Campo, Texas. Check them out at LiveOakOutdoors.com or you can book your hunt by calling Chris Slimp at 832-466-9646. Do you have a hog problem at your ranch or deer lease? We have the solution. The System Hog Trap comes in two sizes, 17-foot and 30-foot diameter traps. After you trap the hogs, take the top section off the trap and use it for another feeder site to keep the hogs away from the feeder. The System is both a trap and a deer food plot fence. That way you don't waste your money on just a hog trap. Call 940-391-3669 or visit www.goinfencing.com. That's fencing.com Three Curl Outfitters is now offering guided North Texas quail hunts just 30 minutes south of DFW. If you're looking for a quality quail hunt close to home, planning a company outing, or just looking for a place to tune up your dogs, you need to give them a call. Hunts are $250 a hunter for a half day hunt. That includes 15 birds. And you can add extra birds for $8 a piece if you want to give your bird dog just a little more run. You're welcome to bring your own dogs. Otherwise, the guide and dog fee is 150 a day for your entire group. That's not per person. Go to 3curl.com or call 214 641 8097 to book your hunt today.
1: I've had choices. Since the day that I was born, there were voices
0: that told me right from wrong if I had listened. Cable Smith, welcoming everybody you back to the Lone Star Outdoors today. show powered by Dallas Safari You'll Club. Thanks to Lone Star Beer and Hoff George Power Polaris as well, a long time presenting sponsors. A little George Jones for you this morning as we are about to get into one of my absolute favorite discussion topics and that is the exciting and incredible world of hunting dogs yes sir uh y'all know that that is a passion of mine obviously I've got a lab but I enjoy hunting any kind of game with any dog to be honest with you from mountain lions in Colorado to hog dogging in Oklahoma to quail out west you name it I don't care these dogs Love to do it, and it's obvious in the way that they carry themselves, in their demeanor. They're freezing their asses off. But if they, if a dog could smile, they'd be smiling. You know, they're wagging their tail, and they've got ice crystals forming on their whiskers. Or maybe they've chased a cougar for 27 miles, literally. I've seen that 27 miles over the course of a day, and they're wore out. But if that cat goes 27 more miles, you know the dogs going after him. Uh, or hell, South Texas, you've got a bird dog that's so covered and thorns and stickers that uh, there's no way that he can be comfortable but he's going to point that next covey of quail yes indeed few things bring me greater pleasure than than watching those dogs do what they love and we're going to talk some quail dogs specifically here with dr dale rollins but before we do that this segment of the show probably brought to you by lone star at credit you know land that's the one thing they're not making any more of and they're not gonna but all of us want it right so if you're ready to take that plunge, whether that's for recreating, for hunting, fishing, running cattle, or just to get the hell out of the big city, you know what to do. Give Lone Star Ag Credit a call. They've been doing it for over 100 years, and they'll do the same for you. LoneStarAgCredit.com. All right. Well, a couple of weeks ago, we had Dr. Dale Rollins on to discuss the status of the Bob White Quail. And he joins us now for part two on our mini-series concerning all things Bob White's and the dogs that we love to hunt them with. And so it's my pleasure to welcome Dale back to the show.
4: Good to be back. And, you know, last week we we talked about some of the challenges our quail face, just trying to survive on the landscape. Everything's trying to kill them from uh, every predator, every bird of prey out there, to eye worms and fecal worms. Uh, They really have an uphill battle and just you know trying to survive on the landscape today though i want to i want to get into the beloved dogs that we used to hunt these birds because i think you would agree there's uh, there's not a more sporting thing out there than a solid point and flush from a from a steady bird dog
2: aldo leopold who we in the wildlife community recognize as the father of wildlife management back in the 1930s he said that quail hunting was grand opera Mm-hmm. It is a spectacle to behold. I call it poetry in motion when you've got more than one bird dog out there and they're saining the pasture for the scent of quail. Yes, it's it's what drives most people's interest in quail hunting. Uh,
4: absolutely. Over these 50-plus years that you've been chasing Bob white around, what breeds have you trained and hunted with?
2: Well... I'm going to preface this, Cable, by saying I'm not a dog trainer. I'm not a dog breeder. I've I've had dogs through most of my life. Some were good. Some could stand improvement. And as I used to tell my wife, when I'd come in from a quail hunt, I'd say, Man, I'm glad I've got good dogs, because you don't appreciate good dogs until you've hunted with bad dogs. Right. And the bad dog isn't always the dog's fault. Sometimes it's the person that's uh, commanding or indiscriminately shocking the dog or whatever. You know, there's a, there's a lot of things that uh, uh, maybe we ought to be talking about how to handle bird dogs as opposed to the bird dogs themselves. I, I poke fun sometimes when I give a presentation about somebody that's got this kind of dog or somebody that kind. Of, uh, but I'm only, I am always end that by saying there are good dogs of every breed. Mm-hmm. I've been very fortunate most of my hunting career, I started off with a Brittany, and with a Pointer, and and, uh, they did fine for me. I was 17, 18 years old, and they did a good job. Over the last 30 years, I've had a variety of English setters, and I say a variety because we bred a little bit of Brittany into them, hmm. and so we have a line of what we call betters. We have better bird dogs, <laughs> and that that little bit of Brittany has worked for us. I'm not recommend it for everybody, but uh, my dogs currently are anywhere from five eighths to fifteen sixteenths English Setter, and then just a little bit of Brittany in them. So, it, it, number one, it helps them make a better retriever, uh, and they're they're just great dogs. They're good. They're good. They're good. Um, they're good hunting dogs, but they're also good uh, dogs around the house and that kind of thing. So uh, yeah. I've, I've been very pleased with them. Well, oh, let me ask you The dogs out there have ever breed.
4: And you said you uh, wanted a little more retrieving. Uh, yeah, I've hunted with quite a few bird dogs. And actually my lab gets invited to hunt with these dogs because they have no interest whatsoever in picking up a quail. Point them. Uh, and then it's once the, the shots are fired, they're already looking for the next cubby. So which breeds, as far as traditional bird dogs, are more apt to you know have a desire to retrieve?
2: Well, typically the uh, Britneys, and and I've never had German short-haired pointers, but I know a lot of those are pretty good retrievers as well. Typically pointers, English pointers, are not good retrievers, always exceptions to that, but... Uh, uh, English pointers have one thing in their mind, and that's, I found this, Covey, you do the paperwork, I'm going on to the next one kind of thing. Um, when I've got a dog, and, and my prototype better, I called her Little Annie, she was half Brittany, half Setter, she was the best dead bird dog I've ever seen. She could find cripples and so forth. and And that's what really makes you feel good about feeding a bird dog. It's when you've got a bird down, everybody says it's right here, you saw it right here. Well, little Annie's over 75 feet and she comes bringing it up to you kind of thing. Uh, So I really admire a a good dead bird dog and uh, being able to find those crippled birds.
4: It's funny you said it makes you feel good about feeding them. Um, My lab is, is a family pet. But if she wasn't, you know, she's also a tool. I mean, I do this for a living. She's part of... Really, the business of the Lone Star Outdoor Show, and if she wouldn't retrieve, uh, she'd be looking for a new home. You know, someone that just wanted a pet.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: And and for people that have hunting dogs, uh, you know, there's just there's no alternative. I'm not paying to feed a dog that's not going to do the work. You know,
2: it, it it heightens the performance. It brings that orchestra mm-hmm. to to a crescendo when you see that point, when that dog's got the head up high, the tail up high, and it's you you see them what we call smoking the pipe. They're just bringing in that um, scent, and it's just like it's it's just like it's mesmerizing the dog, and and that's just a very special moment in an upland game bird hunter's life.
4: Yes, sir. I think you you know this is the the you know, we talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly. The ugly side of the of the uh, the hunting dog community. Those who have them, and and this goes to a, a lion hunt that I did in Colorado. And if the dogs don't cut it, you know you, you're not going to find a home for these these hounds that who knows what kind of breed they are and uh they're at the end of the day a 22 bullet's pretty cheap and you hate to talk about that but i think people don't realize that um it's, it's business a lot of these guys they they raise these dogs to make a living and uh if, you know you can't find a good home for them that's uh that's kind of the the ugly side of it
2: yeah, that's that's a little extreme for me. But, uh, <laughs> you're more Well,
4: you're a quail hunter. You're more
2: yeah, of a gentleman. Yeah, I always so. say quail hunting is a bit more civilized sport. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, the bond between me and my dogs, you know, even the dog that's number four on my string still gets my attention and you know and my love and so forth. So uh, I've had dogs that I did give away.
3: Uh-huh.
2: Uh, I gave away one because uh, I got it when it was like 13 months old. I didn't raise it myself. The trainers had apparently been pretty hard with it on the e-collar. And it was not going to flush any birds, but it was it would uh, ghost point, false point, a lot. And so here I'm running two or three other dogs on the ground, and they see this one go on point where they're all going to honor it for about the th- first three times, and then they dismiss it saying, oh, she's full of bull. Uh, I gave her away just because she was slowing up my train, as I said, but she was a sweet dog and would make somebody a good dog hunting them by themselves, but not hunting in groups of two or three.
4: When you're talking about handling these dogs, what do you start them out on as a as a puppy? I I I used a a, a, a teal wing wrapped around like a paint roller and then hit it around the house. What do you initially introduce the dogs to and and start them in this process?
2: If I have a secret, and again I reiterate, I'm not a dog trainer. But if I have a secret, well, you're not
4: a dog trainer, Dale, but you've been <laughs> messing with these things for 50 years, so you've got a wealth of knowledge on what works and what doesn't for you.
2: What? For me, what works is raising them and, and putting them in the field with their mother and letting them hunt under the influence of their mother as their mentor, because I think they gain so much, um, sometimes good and sometimes if they've done bad, just a stare from mama, I think, is probably reminiscent of a stare that I might have gotten from my mama 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. And so just the peer pressure, if you will, I think is a powerful thing. Um and so that's how I introduce mine. I tell people that I'm not a dog breeder. My secret to quail hunting is, is is to give the bird dogs every opportunity to express their innate potential. And that means I've got them out in the field a lot. I've basically got my dogs with me year-round, and if there's an opportunity, you know, they're running to, to stay in shape and so forth and then just pick up a little bit of practice. And typically by year two, in a good year and it's hard to make a quail dog in a bad year like we got this year but if we had that dog around in 2015-16 after you shot about 100 cubby rises over it you've probably worked out the wrinkles in that dog and so a lot of times people ask me how many how many cubby rises you got to have before you make a dog and I, I think about it and i say i'll oh, probably 100 well 100 cubby rises this year ain't gonna happen hmm. but in 2015 that was a three-day hunt
4: wow yeah oh yeah i think uh we spoke in 2016, I believe, and I think you had your best day ever as far as coveys pointed, in um, and, in and that season. It was like we 50 had, something.
2: Well, we had 72 coveys oh, in uh, no, November of uh, November of 16. We had 70, 72
4: coveys pointed. Lord, I would, I, I, I don't want to say cut my right arm off to experience <laughs> that, but pretty damn close. Uh,
2: you know, and and you know, cable when we spoke earlier about. What bad times Quell have had. Well, but all of a sudden, that was 2016 was the best year for hunting Bob Whites that I've ever seen in 52 years of doing it. Mm-hmm. So, again, they had that ability to come back. Now, we're on pins and needles out of here right now to see if they can pull that rabbit out of their hat again in 2019. Uh, but um, they they have the ability. We just try to help them where we can.
4: Mm-hmm. What habits or traits would you say? is unbecoming of a dog where you're just like, this, this dog's just not going to cut it. And you talked about the one you got at 13 months of false points. Yeah. I don't know if you've actually reared some that, you know, just like, hey, your brother's a, a bad mother, but you just kind of are more of a, a couch dog.
2: I, I guess a couple of things come to mind. One is i worked for many years with Texas A&M with a county agent over in Mills County, Goldfleet. Uh His name is Danny Long, and he trained bird dogs, had some bird dogs. And, and he gave a little training. Uh, seminar for me one time and the bottom line was this any dog that will whoa is a good dog if you can stop that dog by saying whoa you got a good dog and i fully believe in that Now sometimes you know again we we try to be pretty heavy-handed on that e-collar whatever but if you the less stimulation and the more you can get that dog just say whoa because he may be coming into the highway maybe coming into a porcupine whatever if you can get him or her to stop when you say, whoa, that's that's one of the most basic commands. Uh, another thing is, and um, I spoke earlier about little Annie, my prototype better. Well, she had a litter mate named Maggie, and Maggie was always the submissive dog. She was always the omega dog in my string. I gave her away to my hunting buddy, and within two hunting trips, everybody that hunted with him were saying, where did you get that dog so she just needed to be outside, out from under the influence of, of her more dominant sister, and she came on like a rising star, and sometimes it takes that. So there, there's a lot of sociology, if you want to think about it like that, that can influence the ability and the behavior of bird dog. But I will always say that the, the main thing is repetition, giving that dog plenty of opportunity to smell wild birds and work wild birds.
4: Is there a book out there that you've read or would recommend? Or I, It sounds like you've just kind of done this through trial and error for you I've personally.
2: just I've just barnstormed it. No, I'm, again, I'm not into registered dogs. I'm not into uh, field trials. I appreciate all that, but I'm not a student of those. <laughs> but uh, there, I'm sure there are some really good videos and so forth. One of our board members at the Rolling Plains Quilt Research Ranch is Steve Snell with Gun Dog Supply. And so Steve's got very well-trained dogs, and, you know, every... I guess book author or trainer has some some various little uh, tricks and so forth, whether it be for woeing or force-breaking them to retrieve or whatever the situation may be. So I can't critique any of those books, but I know there's some out there.
4: What percentage of the time do you use uh, a retriever to, to clean up? Um, I, with your dogs, you might not ever have to do that.
2: Uh, I don't have any... I don't have any Labrador retrievers. So I don't have any, uh, you know, specialty, uh, bred retriever dog. Now, sometimes people, and it's becoming, as you probably appreciate, it's become quite common over the last 15 years for people that are doing this as a business that they've got their dog either at the vehicle or their, their Labrador or it's in the field at their heel kind of thing. Um, and that works wonderfully. I'm fortunate that I've got dogs that are decent retrievers and, and good dead bird finders. And so I typically, I don't have a labrador
4: right on well dale i certainly appreciate it uh always great talking hunting dogs of any kind and and uh you know it's something that i don't get to do as much as you obviously if i get if i make it out once or twice a year and and get to watch a good bird dog work you know that's a a lot of times the highlight of my hunting season um and uh unfortunately from you know where i live it's just it's, it's kind of a reality is there's not many quail around, so i got to come out west and, and hunt with you sometime.
2: Well, I'd love to have you, not this year, but uh, <laughs> in a better year. Uh, my hunting buddy, Steve, we've been across much of the western U.S., uh, hunting and so forth, and we'll come to an especially scenic vista, and he'll walk up to me and kind of put, put his arm on my shoulder, and he'll say, we are blessed men, and all I can say is amen, and that's the way I feel about living in west Texas.
4: Yes, sir. Well, I certainly appreciate your time, and, and I'm sure we'll see you uh, coming up this spring at the Park City's quill uh, banquet.
2: We'll be there, and I'll, we'll also be at the Dallas Safari Club convention here in a couple of weeks, too. So, okay. so I, I, when you hear the Bob White whistle, that'll be the booth for the Rolling Plains Quill Research Range.
4: Ranch. Oh, so you, you, do you know your booth number?
2: Uh, I don't know it off the top of my head. Like I said, just keep your ear cocked that Bob White. <laughs> whistle.
4: All right, Dale, well, we appreciate it.
2: Okay, thank you, Cable.
0: Our good friend, Dr. Dale Rollins of the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch, a gentleman who truly has made his life's work revolve around the Bob White quail. And for that reason, it's always just an absolutely wonderful experience picking his brain. Uh, So we appreciate Dale jumping on today. Unfortunately, just looking at the clock, we are flat out of time. Got to get out of here. That segment of the show brought to you by All Seasons Feeders and Blinds. You can find their entire lineup, including the Big Ching gone. Uh, Which (laughs) we found out seats at least five, based off of my personal experience. Uh, But you can find the Big Chingon and all of their feeders, including the stand and fill lineup, right there at AllSeasonsFeeders.com. Thanks to Dale as well as our other guests today, Greg Pavor and the Hunter Chef Michael Hunter, who jumped on all the way up from Toronto, Canada. We'll do it again, same time, same place next week. Thanks to all of our sponsors for making this show possible. We wouldn't be here without their support. And we wouldn't be here if you guys and gals weren't listening. So thanks to you, the listener, for being a part of the Lone Star Outdoors show. Until next time, I'm Cable Smith saying, y'all have a great week in the outdoors. Still, yeah. I'll spend
1: my time and all my cash Home for some in a jukebox and the prayer
4: That I might last to see another day